0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is the broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on May 13, 2019. The theme was Don't Tell the Kids. Co hosts for the evening were Alita Bus and Jeff Smith. Live music was performed by Tom Loker.
1: Bus.
2: I'm Jeff Smith.
1: And welcome to Mudrooms. We're happy to see all of you. And we have a great show for you tonight. The theme is um, Don't Tell the Kids. Jeff, do you have any Don't Tell the Kids stories? I
2: do have a Don't Tell the Kids story. I was a teacher, so I have plenty of those. Mm-hmm. But um, I used to teach south of Bethel in a village called Tintatuliak. I was there for three years. And in my third year, we had a new principal and our attendance was a little bit lower than we wanted it to be. So we came up with a creative idea to try to boost attendance. So if you're familiar with fantasy football, it kind of followed that idea. We sat in a room with all of the high school staff and the principal, and we had a big list of all the kids in the high school, and we did a draft. We made teams. So the idea was that if your team had the best attendance, they would get a prize at the end of the week at the end of the month we'd update the kids so we're sitting there round one you're picking that kid that's there every day 7 30 ready to learn right round 15 you're like oh god i don't want to get stuck with billy don't give me billy right and so obviously don't tell the kids how we got the teams
1: (laughs) that's such a perfect story tonight um Yeah, I think there's times when maybe not telling the kids is beneficial to the kids and and the parents both.
2: No doubt. You're going to find that out tonight from some of our stories, definitely.
1: (laughs) Some selective truth-telling. Yeah, I think we have some some zingers for you. So, without further ado.
2: All right. Our first storyteller tonight is Kristen Cox. Kristen has made Juno her home for 24 years. Her teenage daughter was born and raised here. Kristen is a veteran storyteller, mostly to audiences of friends and family. Though you may remember her from her first Mudroom story about dissecting a human large intestine. Fun times. Please welcome Kristen.
3: Hello, everybody. Um, So, a few years ago, my daughter and I rafted the Tatsanchini River. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that river, it runs about 100 miles north of Haines in the Yukon um, down to Dry Bay um, near Yakutat. It's about 150 miles, it takes about 10 days to float. Um, It's very remote and pristine and beautiful, lots of big glaciers and big mountains. Maybe you don't know that um, the TAT is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It was protected in 1994 um, by an international treaty between the US and Canada. It's one of the few watersheds, entire watersheds that's protected. So in 1994, I had just graduated from college and I was working as a field botanist in the Okanagan Valley in Northern Washington and I was following the story of the TAT um, on the radio in the mornings and the evenings And um, my brother-in-law at the time was working for Parks Canada, and at Christmas time, he gave me all the tat swag that the province had produced to mark this designation. And I'd been kind of a a tat fangirl since then, but I'm not really a whitewater rafter, nor like a major adventurer, and I really never thought that I'd get an opportunity to get on the river But surprise, uh, in 2015, this kid I went to college with called me up out of the blue. I hadn't actually spoken to him since 1997, but he said, hey, I got a permit um, to raft the tat, and I have to come through Juneau, and I have room on the trip. Do you want to go? And I was stunned, and I was speechless, and I was like, absolutely, I want to go. I never, you know, it's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, And I knew also that my daughter would not want to miss that. So my daughter is really great, and she, (laughs) she is, she's really great. She's very sweet. Um, She's born and raised in Juneau, and we have often walked around town. Um, We always hold hands, even still. And as she grew, she started graduating up my arm, you know, she'd hold my arm and my elbow. And eventually, um, very not pretty quickly, she outgrew me. Um, by the time she was about 13, she started just slinging her arm over my neck. It's kind of awkward, but it's really bliss. And I would never tell her to, to not do that anymore. So parenting is a little bit like whitewater rafting. <laughs> Sometimes it's very serene and wonderful, and sometimes it's a little bit terrifying. Also, it's permanent and temporary at the same time. Just like um, the river, it's always there, but it's also passing you by very quickly. And I think as a parent, especially the only child, you have that awareness a lot. You see adolescents coming, and you wonder if this is the day that your child is going to vanish and take with her her most cherished childhood habits. This isn't a sad story, but I knew I was going <laughs> to get choked up anyway. <laughs> anyway, moving along. So, the Tad is not known for its white water, it's not really a white water river, and all of the white water happens in the first 40 minutes. Yay. Now, I had not been in a raft since the 90s, and my daughter had never been rafting ever in her life, um, so why not start, you know, with a 10-day remote wilderness trip? So it was not a um, it was not a professionally guided trip, but my friends were experienced guides, and I felt very confident and um, with them. So off we went. There were three rafts, and um, we were traveling in the last raft, and. There was an oarsman and there were three of us in the front bench with my daughter in the middle. We were going along, everybody's having a great time, getting wet, bouncing around, it's it's great. It's it's really good. Um, And then suddenly, out of nowhere, I guess, um, a giant hole appears in the river. And I mean like a very, very big hole. And um, we're watching the first two rafts negotiate around this hole and the second raft hits a rock really hard, and the woman in the front bounces out of the raft. But fortunately, she gets hauled back in really quickly, but in the meantime, my oarsman is was preparing for a rescue, a potential rescue, and, and at, during that time, we got sucked into the vortex of this hole. Um, the oarsman started pulling hard on the oars, he's screaming to hang on, the raft, swing sideways and we literally drop into this massive hole. The, the woman on the right side of the raft jumps to the top to keep the raft from flipping over, but I'm on the bottom side of the raft. And it right when we hit, I felt my hands slip off of the, the frame of the raft, and I felt myself tipping out of the raft. And there was this wave just roaring up inches in front of my eyeballs, and I just, it happened kind of in slow motion, I thought, this is it, I'm, I'm gonna go in, and I'm literally gonna have to swim for my life. It was terrifying. And then, in the next moment, literally the next moment, I'm sitting straight up, staring into my daughter's face, and she's smiling, and she's got these big eyes, and she's just like, having a great time, and I am stunned. I'm speechless. I'm, my mouth is like, I don't know what's happened. I'm not even wet. And then I realized what happened. She had her arm around my neck. And when I tipped out, I, I, re- I went past the tipping point, but I must, when I reached the end of her arm, she just hauled me back in by my neck. It was a miracle, also probably somehow related to parenting, I don't know, but so she saved my life, and um, she hates this story. Teenagers don't like it when you tell stories about them, especially when they involve saving the life of your parent, maybe, I don't know, but so if you see her around town, you don't tell her that I told you. (laughs)
0: Our next story this evening is about sex education and may not be suitable for a younger audience.
1: Our next storyteller is Connor Lendrum. Connor Lendrum loves sex, sexuality, flirting, romance, and the exploration and discussion of all of it. He has spent the majority of his thinking hours pondering the cornucopia of relationships available to us all if we have the desire and the tools to explore them and how setting the foundation early can significantly lower the difficulty of those explorations. Here's Connor.
4: Thank you, Alita. Hey, everybody. So show of hands, who here was satisfied with their sexual education growing up? We got one, and me. I think that's a big problem. I think that's too bad. And if you're just too shy to raise your hand, then good for you. I'm glad that you were happy. We all have different words for it, you know, but everyone knows what you mean when you say the talk. Two capital Ts, it's very unambiguous, pretty universal in the United States anyways. And first I wanna talk about my dad. He was never given any kind of sex talk of any kind. He grew up on a farm. And as far as his parents were concerned, uh, that was all the education he needed. <laughs> he grew up watching animals get birthed, watched them making the babies before they got birthed. He was involved in a lot of it. And, but his parents never talked to him about sex, never talked to him about the dangers, about the emotional parameters that are really fairly uniquely human. Um, and let's see, my dad was born in 1948. And he grew up in rural California on a farm that his family had worked on for generations. My mom, the closest thing that she ever got to a talk was when she was 12. Her mom opened up her door to her bedroom, threw a paper bag at her where she was sitting on her bed, and said, hey, you're going to need this soon, probably, and closed the door and left. And inside this brown paper bag was a sanitary napkin and one of the belts used to hold it in place. It's, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it when you get home or ask someone sitting next to you. Because it used to be what was used instead of tampons and instead of pads. And that was the closest my mom ever got about a sex talk, which isn't even really about sex. And um, I think that's too bad too. But both of those things together really highlight how incredible my sex talk was. So both my parents, when I was in fifth grade, knew that I was about to be going into sixth grade, going into middle school, and they thought about how, when they were going into middle school, they knew people who were having sex. And let's be clear, there are people in middle school right now who are having sex. No matter how terrible an idea that might be, that's just part of reality, it happens. I knew people in middle school when I was in middle school who were having sex. And it's important that people recognize that that's a thing. So when I was in fifth grade, my dad and my mom made a plan. And my dad went to the store and bought some condoms. And he sat down with me um, to talk. But my brother, who was a year younger, was like, there's no way that you guys are having a secret meeting without me. So he came to. Because Cole is always involved. And... Uh, My dad talked to me about sex, he talked to me about relationships, he talked to me about how I was way too young to be having sex, about how it should be years and years before I did, but about how sex was a good thing, about the emotional costs and risks and responsibilities and how it can be beautiful and fun and great. Um, And then he showed me how to put on a condom. (laughs) And this was a big part of me becoming who I am today. And I've been really lucky. I mean, I know there's a lot of things that go into making a person who they are, and I'm not saying there's one way to teach any kids about sex, but pretending that you need to wait until they're about to have sex to have the talk, I think, is a mistake. I think there are a lot of things in the world that kids need to know about a lot sooner, and I think that sex is a great example of that. Um, I've been monogamous for many years of my life. I've been polyamorous for many years of my life. I think of sex as the ultimate form of play among many other important things. It's exciting. It's fun. There are an unbelievable amount of ways to experience what that is, ways which, if you ask people on the street, they might even say that is sex, and I would disagree. So when you're thinking about what not to tell the kids. Think about all the times that you were in situations growing up where suddenly you didn't know what the other person wanted from you. You didn't know what was expected of you. You were asked things that you didn't know how to answer. And think about a scenario where instead someone had years before told you this is coming. And think about next time what you should tell the kids. Thank you.
2: Our next speaker is Chip McMillan. Chip was born in Boulder, Colorado, and moved to Juneau in 2005. He's a retired professor of education and is now studying to be a whirling dervish. Please welcome Chip.
5: Well, I have to confess, I made up that part about uh, the whirling dervish. Uh, I'm not a whirling dervish, but um, Donald Trump gets to make up stuff every day, so why can't I? So my story is um, one I've already shared with my teenage daughters who are back in the Side there and so it's too late now but it might have been a mistake sharing this story with them and uh, it goes like this my friends Mark and Chris and I endeavored to hike the 38-mile Perea Canyon southern Utah uh, March of uh, 1978 and uh, Chris right away shared that he had brought along psilocybin mushrooms to, quote, enhance his Canyon experience. And uh, a little background might be useful here. Uh, In the 60s, uh, psilocybin mushrooms and LSD were investigated for their medicinal and uh, psychedelic properties. Uh, Some of you may remember Timothy Leary. He uh, had a course he titled The Harvard Psilocybin Project. Uh, You can guess what the students did. It was uh, the most popular course uh, at Harvard. Uh, But by the 70s, these psychoactive substances had uh, taken on a a different flavor, I guess. Uh, They were considered basically a threat to national security. Uh, Richard Nixon actually proclaimed Timothy Leary to be, quote, the most dangerous man in America. And uh, at the time, I was personally terrified of any substance that would alter my consciousness. And I was certainly not interested in 10 years in federal prison, which was, believe it or not, what you could get for messing with these things. So this will all be relevant in just a moment. Uh, Day one, uh, Perea Canyon, it was sleeting. and the next two days, it was alternately sleeting and raining. It had been the uh, snowiest winter uh, for 25 years for southern Utah. And the Perea River uh, filled the canyon from wall to wall. It was pretty narrow in those first three days. And it was frigid. Uh, And it was also between about mid-thigh to crotch deep. Um, Day two, Chris hit some quicksand and uh, nearly drowned and in the effort to uh, pull him out of the quicksand he uh, his, sprained his ankle badly uh, and the third day about mid-afternoon i was in so much pain from the cold water and i am embarrassed to share this but uh, i was screaming out loud in pain and it felt and this is how it felt at the time i remember thinking to myself this was is what it would feel like if my legs were in a freezer and somebody was whacking them with a mallet. And I, uh, I decided I couldn't tolerate it, this anymore. So uh, I waited for Chris and Mark to catch up to me. And I said, I am climbing out of this canyon. Uh, they looked at me in horror because this was a suicidal idea. I won't go into the details, but it's just not gonna happen and live through it uh, And they knew that but they could tell that I was uh, no pun intended deadly serious about this So Chris said chip. Uh, I'm not gonna do my mushrooms. I need my wits about me because of my ankle Would you like to try some? <laughs> uh, I looked at Chris and I said Give them to me. So, curiously, I did not inquire about dosage. Like, should I have one or two or what? Uh, So I took his baggie and I emptied it and ate all the mushrooms. So, uh, Chris and Mark did not transform into giant reptiles with uh, pineapples coming out of their ears. Uh, I didn't see Jesus either, Uh, but the canyon did transform for me. Uh, There was this uh, patch of fern moss growing on a seep coming out of the canyon wall, and it was like this pulsating iridescent green, Uh, and it was like I had never seen anything other than black and white my whole life, and I was seeing color for the first time. Um, So next I found this uh, insect track, tiny, tiny little footprints in the sand uh, and even with a full pack on my back, uh, I dropped down to my hands and knees and I crawled with my face barely a foot off the sand and I followed this track 20, 25 yards uh, through grass and across mud and uh, the entire time I was having a little chat with uh, the beetle or whatever it was that made this path. Uh, and then I found a stone that uh, fit nicely in the palm of my hand. And it had this uh, parallel banding, uh, yellow and orange and pink and uh, white. And the white bands had this swirling magenta pattern. And it's Jupiter. It's, oh my god, I'm holding Jupiter in my hand. and And then the water of the Perea River was like bathwater. It was so warm and it felt so good against my legs. And and then the canyon opened up really wide and there were these uh, pillars of sandstone jutting up into the sky and it was like some kind of, you know, Star Trek planet scene. And I was just in awe. And then up ahead there were Mark and Chris and they were just sitting watching me and I walked up and said yeah, what are you looking at and uh, Chris says well, I guess they worked the mushrooms (laughs) So the crazy thing is although I would claim that the mushrooms saved me. I mean, I really think they did uh, I have not tried mushrooms since and that was 40 years ago So again, back to the question, uh, was this unwise to share this with my two teenage daughters over there in the corner? I'm just curious if you think it was a good idea or not. (laughs) Lots of opinions. Anyway, thank you.
1: Our next speaker is Donnie Gutt. Donnie Gott was born in Ketchikan, Alaska. She moved to Juneau when she was nine. She's the matriarch of Team Messing Gott, which includes Jason, Maisie, and Alma. She's an assistant to the Senate Finance Committee by day and a lawn dress most nights. She's addicted to Shakespeare, British pr- procedurals, and true crime. Please welcome Donnie to the stage.
6: All right. So in 2014, my husband Jason and I decided that we were going to try and have another baby. We had a seven-year-old daughter at the time, Maisie. I don't know if you've met our Maisie, but she is an extraordinary human being. She's she's turning out real well. So we decided this is going really well. We never want to sleep again in our lives, so let's have another baby. And um, so we went through the rigorous work of getting pregnant and we did. And about six weeks into the pregnancy, I was at work and I began spotting, which is when you're spotting blood. And uh, so I called my midwife and I told her what was happening and she said, you should come into the clinic and we'll check you out. So I, after work, I went to the clinic and my midwife couldn't see me. She was with another client. So they sent in another employee I will call her, and she examined me, and uh, she examined me with this, I think it's a sonogram machine. It looks kind of like a walkie-talkie, and it has sort of a, a Fisher-Price microphone attached to it, and, she, and it's usually used to detect butts and heads in babies that are much farther along, um, but she was using it to look for a heartbeat, and she could not find one. So, um, and in fact, she could not find anything. She said, there's nothing there anymore. It's gone. You're having a miscarriage. And uh, this was not my first rodeo. I had miscarried before I'd gotten pregnant for Maisie. Um, and at that time, I had to miscarry naturally. It's a long story, um, but I, it took about four days. It was excruciating. Any woman in this room who has gone through this knows the physical pain that comes with a miscarriage. It is absolutely a nightmare. And it's blood and it's tissue and it's cramping and it's contractions and it's labor with no baby. And uh, I didn't want to go through that. So I was trying to be very pragmatic and grown up about it this time. And we talked about how we could deal with this as quickly as possible so that I didn't have to go through that pain. I was in a show Uh, I was in a play and I had to perform that weekend. Um, I was playing a very pregnant woman who gives birth prematurely and has her baby taken away from her, so it was a very surreal (sighs) confluence of things. And um, it turned out we discussed the options and we decided what we would do. And then she said, You have to go to the hospital and get an ultrasound before we can do anything. This is protocol. And so she called the hospital and they couldn't see me until the following Monday. This was a Wednesday. And so I I was on my own for the next four days to perform Shakespeare and care for my child and go to work and do all these things, knowing that at any moment uh, this would start happening and, I, and I'd been through it before and I, it felt the same and I, I felt like I, I can deal with this. I just, I need to deal with the physical stuff and I can do the emotional work later, but I just have to get through this, um, this. And I was terrified to just begin to violently, spontaneously abort on stage in front of people in McFeeters Hall. Um, so Monday morning came, I made it through the weekend, uh, still bleeding, still cramping, Losing tissue, um, and also mourning the loss of this potential uh, life that we really, really wanted. And uh, my friend Jesse met me, and we went to the hospital. And I lay on the bed, and the radiologist, you know, got me all gooed up on my tummy, and she, you know, looked around, and I couldn't look at the screen uh, because I didn't want to see my, uh, you know, empty apparently geriatric, since I was over 35, uterus. And uh, so I looked away and after what seemed like a really long time the radiologist said well, there's your baby's heartbeat. And there's your baby. Everything looks just how it should. Everything's fine. Everything's great. And approximately a hundred years later she said this is a good thing. And I imagine that Jesse and I, we, we, did, I didn't, I was like, what the, what is happening here? I am, this is not, uh, ah. so I went home, and I called the birth center, and I said, you made a mistake. According to this ultrasound, there's a baby in there, there's a heartbeat, uh, everything's fine, and um uh, the, the. The woman who had examined me, um, I was very mad at her. I think I'm still a little mad at her. Um, uh, But my midwife was incredible. And uh, the woman who had examined me then called me later and said, oh, well, maybe you have to prepare for something called placenta privia. Your placenta is misplaced. And so I didn't see it because, you know, your plant is cattywampus and so you're going to need to prepare to maybe late in your pregnancy go to Seattle and you'll you'll probably have to have C-section and uh, and none of that happened. About 37 weeks into my pregnancy I began spotting again and uh, this lasted a couple of days. And I just held my tummy and I just asked for my baby to just just tough it out, just stay. And on June 28th, 2015, Alma Lee Messing was born into the hands of the strongest and most capable midwives that Juno has to offer. And she came out, um, unlike her sister, she came out just screaming and crying and she had every reason to be making noise because she had been through a lot. Maisie likes to hear her birth story. That's my oldest. Uh, When Alma's older, I I don't know that I will tell her this story. Um, But what I will tell her is that she was born on the exact day that the midwife predicted. Um, She was born in the call, which makes her magic. And when I dressed her to take her home, I looked at her little pink perfect body and I just kissed her all over and just held her to me so that she could feel my profound gratitude that she was here.
0: You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These Don't Tell the Kids stories were recorded on May 13, 2019. To see if you have a story you'd like to share, look up the dates and themes for next season's shows on Facebook or at mudrooms.org.
2: This is our final show of the season. And so what we always do this night is we announce who the beneficiaries are going to be for next season and what the themes are going to be for next season. So first, Healing Hand Foundation. Healing Hand Foundation provides assistance to help meet some of the unfunded medical and healthcare-related needs of search beneficiaries and veterans. 100% of the proceeds will be given to Southeast Alaskans Anywhere Search has a clinic in Southeast to help them cover medical expenses. Over the past two years, they've averaged 100 financial assistance awards per year, ranging from $250 to $600 per year. So they'll be one of our recipients next year.
1: The other major organization is Juno Alaska Music Matters, JAM. Some of you know them as the paper violins in the schools. They use music to promote academic success, especially in the elementary schools where half of the kids are eligible for free and reduced lunch. So they serve 500 young students who receive an instru- access to an instrument and 90 minutes of music education at no cost. Um, and they bring in teaching artists for that program. So JAM will be our other major, um, we'll split most of the events between those two, and then we'll do uh, one event to KTOO.
2: Yeah. So one event to KTOO, needs no introduction, it's your local public media station with three public stations, KTOO, KRNN, KXLL, multiple TV channels, two websites, and a variety of other outlets. Um, And their mission is to provide trusted, independent news, connect our community to a wide range of local, national, and global media, promote civic participation, and embrace diverse viewpoints and cultures.
1: And KTO has been such a great partner for Mudroom since the beginning. Um, We have used their equipment, they broadcast our shows, so they've been a great partner. And um, that was the beneficiary. So now let's talk themes for Season 9. Let's do it. We have, in no particular order, although I think we're going to start September off with Food for Thought.
2: Food for Thought. September. You, on the stage, right here, telling the story. It'll be half cost for you to sign up tonight.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, and then we're also gonna have WTF. Um, We're gonna do begin again, new beginnings, um, other stories of starting over. um,
2: We're gonna do unexpected.
1: And left behind.
2: Acceptance is the next theme.
1: Animal House and In Deep. So that's there. next
2: season, season nine of Mudrooms. Yeah. Any other announcements? Our next speaker is Jeff Landfield. Jeff moved to Anchorage from New Mexico when he was 19 and graduated from UAA in 2009. He has run for the state Senate twice as a Republican. He got close in 2012 and got creamed in 2016. In early 2015, he was appointed to the Commission on Judicial Conduct by Governor Walker. What ensued became one of the most bizarre scandals in Alaska politics. It is known as the infamous hashtag SpeedoGate. Please welcome Jeff.
7: Thanks. Um, in 2012, I ran for the State Senate against Senator Lisa McGuire, who was a very well-known popular incumbent, um, because I was very worried about the state's fiscal problems at the time. So I ran against this incumbent in the primary, uh, didn't have much money, nobody knew who I was, but I worked really hard, and I got 45% in the primary. And it was kind of shocking to a lot of people, because I was like a nobody. And even though I lost, I was got really excited about the process and politics and kind of public service. And I decided that I wanted to stay involved and maybe run for office again, or maybe, you know, get on one of these boards and commissions I heard about. There's like the serious ones, like judicial council, and there's like the ADA board, and and there's like the massage board. You know, so there's like a lot of different boards and commissions. So, I wanted to get involved in one of these, and you know, I found out you have to kind of talk to the governor and you have to get appointed. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And at the time, I was I was 30 or 29, I guess, and I was single, still single, ladies. And Uh, I'd, I'd go to Vegas a lot with my friends and I got this thing where it's kind of, I'm a big guy, so it's funny. I'll wear a Speedo or like a mankini at the pool, like a thong mankini. And, and, and I'll tell you the women, they, they see it, they love it. They want to take pictures and everybody's having a good time. We're drinking at the pool. So I would like say one day I had this epiphany where I was like, man, a lot of these pictures exist. A lot of my friends are here. A lot of people are here. So I'm just going to go ahead myself and put these pictures of me in a Speedo with these women on Facebook. Because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and, unless it ends up on Facebook. Um, so I kind of became known as like, this guy who like, run for office and kind of a weird guy and wears a Speedo, and, and it, was like, it was like a widely known thing. Um, it wasn't like a secret. So Parnell's governor, and I'm like, I want to get on one of these boards and commissions. So I apply, send my application in, I go to like, an interview with his boards and commissions person, and I had been really critical of, of Parnell and his fiscal policies, and I was basically told, oh, you're not going to get appointed to a board and commission, um, sorry. So I said, all right. So then Governor Walker, Bill Walker runs for governor and the Milot thing. And, and I was really happy about what he was saying about the budget and other things. So I kind of helped his campaign out a little bit. I volunteered and he wins. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'll get on one of these boards and commissions now. So this guy, Craig Fleener, who was his original running mate, is a friend of mine. So I applied and they kind of interviewed me and it wasn't, it was new administration. So they kind of said, okay, we'll, we'll find you something to do. And, you know, I put like alcohol beverage control board or I put judicial council or I put like tourism board. A couple weeks go by and i wake up and i check my email and i get this like a pdf letter it's like congratulations you've been appointed to the commission on judicial conduct and i think what in the f- is that <laughs> never heard of it so, so i google it it's like it's pretty serious it's three judges three uh, lawyers and three uh public members and and they adjudicate complaints against judges i'm like whoo sounds like a big big one i'm pretty happy about that so I call him and I say, "Hey, great! I'm excited, but, but don't forget I ran against Senator McGuire, and she was at the time the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who would over, overseen that, that appointment. And we're we're good now, but we were at the time like, it's a nemesis. It's like it's like an unmovable object and an unstoppable force. It was it was real bad. But I was pumped because I was like, no, I get my I can go against her in the confirmation hearing, and I was very open with the Walker people about my my Facebook. In fact, it's public. Anybody could see it. There was no secret." So I call and I say, I'm really excited about this, just so you know, there's the whole you know, McGuire thing. And they go, oh, no, it's a small, small state, no problem, it's okay. And then like, a couple days go by and I get a call and they go, this is a big problem, actually. We have to like reconsider what, what's going on. It's, it's happening, you know? And I go, what, what's going on? They go, well, Senator McGuire's not very happy and there's some issues. And so I, you know, it was already at that point, some reporter had tweeted out who's bringing popcorn to Jeff Landfield's confirmation hearing. So it's like out there. So I don't want to withdraw because it's going to look like I don't get bullied. So I get a call the next day from my friend, who's a Senate staffer, and he goes, hey, what are you doing? He's like, something's going on, man. There's pictures of you and your Speedos, like, all over the Capitol. Like, House floor, Senate floor, like, everywhere, you know? And it's like, it's, I'm like, great, it's, it's not a secret. So, so then I get a call back, and they said, look, you have to withdraw, you have to, you have to take your name off. And I go, well, I don't want to do that, because it's already out there in public, and if I do that, I, you know, I don't think it's a big deal, it's fine. I said, if the governor really wants me to do that, I'll do it. But if not, I'm not gonna. I'm just going to go through the process. So the next day, I get a call from the be- b- boards and commissions person, and they go, you're out. You know, it's, it's out of our hands. The deputy chief of staff made a decision. And I go, well, okay, I I think that might be a problem because people know I've been appointed, and I'm not going to tell them what, ha- you know, you guys tell them what you want. So a couple of days later, go by, the weekend's over. I get a call from reporters. I say, like, what's going on? What's your, your confirmation hearing? And I said, well, I talked to the, Senator McGuire. talk talked to the go- governor, you know. And then it gets out. And then for them to kind of justify their position, they put out a press release, saying I was a mis- like basically saying I'm a misogynist. You know, and, and I'm like reading it, I'm thinking like, what's, and it's crazy, right? Like, like ADN, KTVA, Huffington Post, New York everybody's calling me, right? And everybody's like, what's going on? What'd you, what, like, what's, what's happening? What, what'd you do? And I said, nothing, I'm killing it in Vegas, and it was not even a secret. <laughs> so, so the whole thing goes like, cause I didn't apologize and everybody was confused. So the whole thing goes like nuts, and it's like on Twitter trending as like Speedo Gate, and I'm like, I'm two days I'm like famous, like people are calling me like reporters, like national people, and it just got to be just totally out of control, and and um, you know, going back in in you know the last few months, you you see the the anti-Muslim guy with the anti-Muslim tweets, and you see the anti-pot prohibitionist lady who wanted to be was being on the, the pot board. You had the guy who lied on the resume. I mean, you had a litany of these people on these boards and commissions who didn't make it for for some real serious problems. Um, So I guess I kind of figured out that maybe I was four years too early because nowadays I could be a commissioner. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Okay, our next speaker is Logan Lott. Logan grew up in an Air Force family and moved around the world as a child. He came to Juno at the age of 19. He owns Tongass Fitness and teaches at Juno Community Charter School. He likes black coffee, good beer, and breathes in donuts in no particular order. Please welcome Logan.
8: So whenever I was a kid in San Antonio, Texas, I didn't exactly go out looking for trouble, but when trouble found me, I didn't really, I kind of went with it. So when I was a kid, especially when I was like 10 years old in fifth grade, that trouble had a name. His name was Apollo. He was my friend. He actually had a sister named Athena as well. Just side note. So Apollo, he got me in a lot of trouble. One time I showed up to school, and Winston Elementary School. I show up before school's even started. I show up, and him and another guy, another kid, come up to me, and they're like, "Dude, you'll never guess what Apollo did." I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "He used a payphone and he called 911. He said the school's on fire," and I was like, "No, no, he didn't do that." And he's like, "Yeah, he did." And then when he when he talked to the 911 person, he was like, um, "So, uh, yeah, the school's on fire," and they're like, "So, uh, who who told you to call?" Him? And He goes. The principal. So I'm like, no way that didn't happen. So sure enough, five minutes later, fire brigade shows up with full gear and everything. They're running along, running along, and then they slowly realize there's no fire. And I'm watching this whole thing unfold after it's already been told to me what has happened. But I didn't tell anybody. And then later on, I got taken away from my classroom and by a teacher's aide. And I was like, oh, I have no idea. Um, what? Why am I being taken away? I have no idea. Because I didn't tell anybody. And so me and this other kid, the other kid who had told me about it, we had to watch while Apollo was put in handcuffs and arrested and taken away from Winston Elementary School. And the vice principal came up to me and the other kid, and, we, and he was like, if I had my way, you guys would be arrested also. That would be you guys too. So... That's how Apollo kind of started me off on this. So a few months later, um, it was winter break. And I leave my house to go to uh, the, the park. And where the park was, it was like two playgrounds and then a gazebo in the middle where people would get married or like the, the youth center would have parties or whatever. So I exit my my house and I go out to the park. And I see a group of kids huddled around this one part of the gazebo. And I'm like, huh? I wonder what they're doing. So I go out there, and Apollo is leading the way in destroying an electrical outlet. Um, they were kicking it; sparks were coming out. They're bashing it with rocks. They were putting their thumbs and legs and whatever else they could on the electrical outlet to dare each other to get shocked. And they're like, whoa! This is awesome. And um, so about like, I didn't. I was like, I'm not gonna include myself in this. I'm just gonna watch. And then about like 15, 20 minutes go by and I was like, I'm doing this. And so I was one of them just kicking this electrical outlet. Sparks are coming out and like putting this one kid was wintertime in Texas, which I mean to us it's like up here now is like nothing. Right. But this kid had winter mittens on and he puts his thumb mitten like on the electrical outlet blows a hole in the thumb the thumb part where we could see his thumb through the mitten and we're like
0: whoa so
8: cool so and at one point we even put a, a wire hanger in it like a clothes hanger we that we found and we're like yeah put this wire hanger and, like, and we're like whoa it's turning orange whoa and we were like oh my god it was amazing that was that day that's all we did the entire day was destroy this electrical outlet so then the next day, we return to mess with it some more. And this time there's less of us, there's like five of us this time, as opposed to like a dozen, right? So it was me and Apollo, his little brother Marky, and, uh, and these two other kids. And um, so, so we're doing the same thing we were doing, kicking it, putting our thumbs on it or whatever, and getting a big jolt of electricity, and uh, it was ridiculous. And then so at one point, Marky, Apollo's little brother, he grabs a two by four, and he goes, wham! big sparks come out. Wham! Second time, more sparks come out. Then, like a charm, third time, he goes wham! More sparks come out and then a little fire goes like this. Smoke fills the gazebo and we start running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We're like, oh my god, what are we going to do? We see a guy about 30 yards away on his cordless phone just like looking at us just like this and we're like, oh no! So, we take off running aimlessly. This is on a military base, by the way. So, we just, like... (laughs) So, we take off, we take off running, and we don't know where we're running, we're just running. And our two other friends that I don't remember their names, they hid behind a trailer, like a trailer thing, and we we later ratted them out anyway, but... So, we're running aimlessly. We ran right by the MP gate, the military police. The MP is standing there, policeman, he has his, his machine gun, and he goes, hey, kids, come over here. And we're like, oh, uh, what? And the first thing we say was, we didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then the MP, he looks at me, and he goes, I got a description of somebody wearing a red, white, and black jacket just like you. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so they put us in the squad car and took us to wherever we, we were like, and um, They actually put us in a little cell. I was 10 years old. Apollo was 10 years old. Marky was like seven. And we were like in this black box with bars and everything. If we would have had a harmonica, it would have been perfect. And the thing about being in a military family, living on base, is that if you get kicked off base, that is big, big trouble because the military pays for your, like, everything. It's free housing, free electricity, free water, or whatever, you know? And so if, our, if we got, were responsible for getting our families kicked off base, that would have been, like, a huge, huge thing. So um, we didn't. Um, I would say, like, we all got, like, uh, really good punishment from <laughs> our parents. Um, but also we had to do, like, three, three weeks of community service, and uh, our parents had to be, like you know, watching us the whole time. Anyway, that's my story, and now I'm a fifth grade teacher.
2: <laughs> Our next storyteller is Sarah Hannon. Sarah is the middle sister of three girls who were raised to be strong, independent, and forthright in efforts and words. She had a long career as a high school teacher, but failed reading the retirement instructions, and instead ran for the legislature. She is 120 days into her first term in elected office, serving part of Juno and Olive Haynes, Coquan, Skagway, and Gustavus. Sarah is a veteran of mudrooms, and thought she didn't have a story to share this season until Easter came around. Please welcome Sarah.
9: It's so good to be here on night 120 of the legislature. (laughs) So this is a family story that's been told for over 50 years in my family. And depending on who's telling it, of course, there's a different perspective. My parents have both passed away, but if they were telling it, it was usually for a laugh. And it was one of those stories told by your parents that you weren't proud of. So I never told this story when I was a kid. And depending on which of my sisters would tell the story, if you were my younger sister, she talked about it repeatedly through her adult years, often in therapy. And her punchline would be how I destroyed her childhood and her life. My older sister would use it to explain that I really wasn't that smart and I cut us off the gravy train. I will tell you that I'm going to tell it from my perspective. And again, since it's been told for over 50 years, some of the facts may have been blended. You can't really tell, because of course you've heard it so much, which was exactly true. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell it from my perspective. And this is the movie version of my life, where I don't look as much of an idiot as my parents might have thought I was. And the timeline at the end... It's the movie version, so I'm not sure exactly how long it took for the culmination to unfold. I grew up in south-central Alaska, and we had a cabin at Kenai Lake, and we spent every Easter there. And in those days, that meant there was snow on the ground. And we got these fabulous Easter baskets. And if anybody grew up in Anchorage, there was one handmade chocolate Place called the Alieska Candy Kitchen that was on Spinard Road. And when they made an Easter basket, the entire basket was made of chocolate. And in my memory, these baskets were this big. They were probably this big. So the basket itself is solid chocolate. The grass inside of it is coconut dyed green with white chocolate, all the eggs and the Easter bunnies. And it meant, of course, the basket had to be wrapped in cellophane. And they were delivered by the Easter Bunny outside. And we firmly believed in the Easter Bunny because every year when you went to your basket, there was a trail. You had to follow the trail through the trees and find your basket. And it was a mad rush because we always had dogs and we had Labradors. And so you needed to get out the door before the dogs got out of the cabin in the morning and get on the trail of the bunny rabbit and find it before the dogs got there. And usually most nights of the cabin, we slept in the back of the cabin in the bunk room. But on Easter Eve, we slept out in the living room in the height of bed so that we could get out the door before the dogs were let out in the morning. And I'm the middle child, which meant I had to sleep in the middle and in the car seat in the back, I had to sit in the middle. And, you know, it's a pitiful thing to be the middle child. But it meant that my younger sister was on the outside of the bed, and she was probably four or five at the time, and I was seven or eight, my older sister was nine or ten, and um, she got to sleep on the outside edge, because if she had to get up in the middle of the night for sure, she would wet the bed, you know, so you you wanted to be able to push her out if she whimpered and needed to go outside to the outhouse. So it's an Easter morning, and I hear something, and I, you know, can't crawl out of the bed to see what you hear but I kind of awaken and I turn over and I see and there's only one big storage room in the cabin and my dad's coming out of the storage room and he has a box and he's got a stick and there's something on the end of the stick and I'm you know watching him and he quietly sneaks out the door of the cabin goes outside and I can't i I was a curious child so if my little sister wouldn't have been woken. I would have gone over and spied out the window. But I couldn't do that without waking her up. And I didn't really want to wake her up. But Dad went outside. He's gone a few minutes. He comes back in. The box isn't there. The stick goes back in the cupboard. And I start thinking. And I'm confused. And I'm trying to figure out what Dad's been doing. So when we wake up first thing in the morning, I happen to step over to the storage closet. And I look at the stick. It turns out that at the end of the stick, was this rabbit pattern. It was a stick with these giant rabbit feet that had been made out of plaster Paris. And you know, as it came to be, he had gone out and laid a trail, hid the baskets, swept and covered his footprints and gone on. So, so I see this, and then as I go outside to find the baskets, I say to my older sister, dad did this. And she's kind of doing the ha, ha ha ha, be quiet. And I'm like, I think dad hid these. And again, she's kind of going the ha ha ha, ha shut up. <laughs> and as the day proceed, or as the morning, as we're getting to the baskets, I'm kind of doing the, I don't think there's an Easter bunny. I think dad hid these. And if there's no Easter bunny, there's no tooth fairy. And my sister, my older sister, is kind of going, that shut up. If you don't believe in the tooth fairy, you don't get any money for the teeth. And then there's a moment where I'm like, and I there's no Santa. And then she's really pissed off. And if you don't believe in Santa, Santa doesn't bring you gifts. And my little sister has been paying attention, but not trying to focus on us. When, of course, she breaks out in tears because she's only four or five and there are older sisters. I'm trying to bring truth and enlightenment (laughs) as the middle child to explain to her that there is no Easter Bunny, there is no Tooth Fairy, and there is no Santa. And of course, as this rolls out, now instead of us squealing with joy out in the snow in our cute little flannels and snow boots and Gorging on chocolate, there are three screaming children, and my mother's doing, what did you do to her? Nothing. And my younger sister spends 20 years telling therapists that I ruined her childhood. And my older sister, who's much quieter and reserved than me, explains to me how I cut us off from ever getting a pony and all the other things. (laughs) because you don't need to bring truth and enlightenment every time you've noticed it. And of course, as the middle child, you believe that you need to make sure that you've pointed out the errors of the ways and connected the dots in case anyone didn't. So um, I was reminded in telling friends about my Easter baskets that you don't have to tell the kids everything just because you know something doesn't mean you have to open your mouth and tell them, which makes it a problem in my new job.
0: This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on May 13th, 2019. The theme for the evening was Don't Tell the Kids. Special thanks to Northern Light United Church, COPA and The Rookery for supporting our live shows and to Lucid Reverie for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Melissa Griffiths, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, and Jim Fitzer. I'm Rich Moniak. Have a good night.